We are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 6 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Get that hand up there. Over there, Richard. Revelation chapter 6 this morning. We read the Apostle John writing, starting in verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it, had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Verse 7, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks and the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The title of my message this morning is Riders on the Storm, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege that you've given to us to be able to gather together in this place and open up your word. And Holy Spirit, we invite you here to give us understanding and application of what we're reading about this morning. We thank you, Lord, that your word is truth. Lord, we pray if there's anyone that has joined us that doesn't have a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, or not born again this morning, would you especially touch their heart today? Lord, we thank you for the work that you're doing in our hearts. We thank you for the healing, Lord. We do pray for continued healing for those that are sick. We pray that you'd bless our time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ready a story about a man who went into a toy store where he saw this toy that looked really complicated. What's that? He asked the salesman. And 
salesman said, what's well, a new educational toy? It's supposed to teach kids about life and to prepare them to cope and adjust to living in the modern world. See, no matter how they put it together, it just doesn't work. It seems like no matter who is trying to put the world back together again, it just doesn't work. But when Jesus comes back, it's finally going to work. The world will come together only when Jesus Christ returns. But prior to his coming, things are going to get dark, very dark. Let me tell you, Revelation chapter 6 is a very descriptive overview of the dark events of the last days. You might call chapter 6 prophecy in a nutshell, beginning with the emergence of the coming world leader, the Antichrist, and ending with the physical return of Jesus Christ. Now we know as Christians that the next best, the next big event prophetically is the rapture of the church where God removes his church from this earth. And we looked at this over the last couple of Sundays as the church is caught up into heaven, tucked away in chapter Four, we're praising the Lord, praising Him for as our Creator. Then in chapter 5, we're praising the Lamb who was slain as our, our Redeemer. We saw last time God holding out His hand with the scroll sealed with seven seals. And the scrolls we looked at were the, the title deed of the earth. And the seven seals basically was for the purpose of revealing what was in the scroll. Kind of like chapters. Now, there's seven seals, seven chapters, and each one is, is broken. It can only be broken by the one who owns the scroll, legally owns the scroll. The one who paid the price for, for it, our, our kinsman redeemer. The only one who is worthy and able to open it was the lamb who was slain, the Lord Jesus Christ from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, as he's described in chapter 5. So we come to chapter 6. Jesus comes forth takes the scroll and begins to peel back the seals. Look at verse 1. Now, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. Now, one of the four living creatures is an angelic being announcing that God is about to unleash His wrath upon the face of the earth. And as chapter 6 opens, and all the way through till chapter 19, it describes a seven-year Great tribulation period. This time is going to be radical. You will want to miss it. You won't want to be here. And the only comfort we have is the fact that God's word says, as his church, we will not be here. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 that uh, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as we look around the world today, it's really hard to believe that it could get any worse. But it's going to. And the Lord doesn't pull any punches here in warning man about this time. Now, chapter 6 is a well-known section of Revelation because it introduces us to the four horsemen of the apocalypse and, and the four horses of a different color as they, they come forth. And it's been popular in movies and different things. But you think about horses. They're incredible creatures. God's created them and, 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 and in a way that it's really hard for us to realize you know, the awe and the respect with, with which past generations have looked upon a horse. You know, today we look at horses as a sign of, of uh, relaxation, of enjoyment, a sport used for racing, or just a pet. But in times past, a horse was a sign of a quickening power, a battle of conquest. 
I love the movie Secretariat because the opening scene in that movie quotes Job 39 verses 19 through 25 and the description of the horse. And it starts this way. It says, more than 3,000 years ago, a man named Job complained to God about all his troubles. And the Bible tells us that God answered and said, have you given the horse its strength or clothed its neck with a flowing mane? Did you give it the ability to leap like a locust? Its majestic snorting is terrifying. It paws the earth and rejoices in its strength when it charges out to battle. It laughs at fear and is unafraid. It does not run from the sword. The arrows rattle against it and the spear and the javelin flash. It paws the ground fiercely and rushes forward in the battle when the ram's horn blows. It snorts at the sound of the horn. It senses the battle in the distance. It quivers at the captain's commands and the noise of battle. I like that because it shows that these horses, they're beautiful creatures. And, and the horses that we're about to read about this morning, powerful, deadly. Horses and horsemen are mentioned some 300 times in the Bible, and yet the, the most well-known is these four horsemen marking the beginning of the Great Tribulation period. Now what we will see here almost resembles a western as four riders are seen riding in a town. But this isn't Kurt Russell, it's not Val Kilmer, it's not Sam Elliott or Bill Paxton coming like a bunch of cowboys in Tombstone, Arizona. Also I want to point out that this isn't some haphazard random event happening here. There's a purpose behind all of this. Heard a story about a cowboy who was applying for some insurance. He was being interviewed by the agent who asked him if he had any accidents. And the cowboy replied, no, I haven't had any accidents, though a steer kicked me in the ribs once and broke two of my ribs, and a rattlesnake bit me on the ankle. The agent replied, well, wouldn't you call those accidents? The cowboy answered, no, I think they did it on purpose. (laughs) See, what we're reading about is no accident. There's a purpose behind all of this. God is behind the scenes allowing these events to, to transpire. And my point is that, that God is going to, to, Christ is going to break all these seals right in, in order. He's fully in charge and control and every creature in heaven. And they're all moving at his command as these horses go forth. Years ago, Billy Graham wrote a book called The Approaching Hoofbeats, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And in the introduction of the book, he wrote this, and I quote, Some theologians and Bible scholars have thought these scenes as described by the Apostle John are a description of past events. However, most evangelical scholars interpret them as having to do with future, as do I. In my view, the shadows of all four horsemen could already be seen galloping through the world at this moment. Therefore, I want not only only to apply these four symbols of events yet to come, but also to put our ears lower to the ground and to hear their hoofbeats growing louder by the day. He concludes, I can hear the hoofbeats of these horses much louder than when I first began writing this book. He wrote the book in 1983. I mean, it's been some 37 years. We should be hearing those hoofbeats louder than we ever have before. It's getting close. Now we read again, look at verse 1, John saying to us, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. Now we need to understand that when the invitation to come and see goes out, it's not to John. Had it been said to John, there would have been no need for it to be repeated four times because John was already standing right there. Another thing that, that there'd been, been no point in the voices as of thunder speaking to John again because he's right there looking. Finally, you can know who the words come and see are addressed to by what happens next. 
What happens? Well, after each time these words go out, a horse and a rider comes forth. So it's a calling forth of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Come, it's time to proceed. It's time to bring judgment upon the earth. And if you're taking notes, these are our four points this morning we're going to break down. And that is the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, the riders on the storm. We'll see number one, a triumphant counterfeit. Number two, a red war machine. Number three, poverty on a pony. And number four, death on four legs. We begin with the first rider in what we would call the triumphant counterfeit. The so-called good guy who's really a bad guy. Look at verse 2. John says, he starts off in verse 1, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. In verse 2, I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Now I call this first one the triumphant counterfeit because he gives the appearance that he could be the Messiah who today is defeating the forces of evil in the world. And his first seal is open and we read of a white horse and a bow and a crown. And there have been many commentators who have said mistakenly that this is Jesus Christ. And they point to chapter 19 verse 11 as proof that the only similarity that I see between the two accounts, is the white horse. No, this is none other than the Antichrist. Because understand the word anti also means in place of. So this man is going to come on the scene, purposely deceiving people, letting them, helping them to believe that, that he is a long-awaited Messiah. But in reality, he's just a counterfeit. It's just a fake. Now, if you're going to go to a store and you want to pass a $20 counterfeit bill... You wouldn't get very far if you had to picture Donald Trump on that $20 bill. Now, if you want to pass off some counterfeit money, you would try to make it look as much as the real thing as possible. I recently heard that the most counterfeited bill is that of the $1 bill because no one checks them. Well, here we have the same thing true for this picture of the rider of the white horse. Because if you take the time to check it out and compare this account to Revelation 19, where it does speak, of Christ returning to the earth on a white horse, you would see there's major differences in the two accounts. The writer in chapter 6 is unnamed. The writer in chapter 19 is called Faithful and True. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He's clothed with a robe dipped in the blood, and, and his name is called the Word of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, a clear description of Jesus Christ. The rider of this horse in chapter 6 is summoned by one of the four living creatures and is sent out by the one who holds the scroll as an unloosening the seal, which is obviously Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the Lamb worthy to open the seals, and he's opening them. So he's not going to open the seal and hop on the horse and send him out and then come back and open some more seals. It just doesn't fit. And the rider in chapter 6 seems to be a lone rider. One in chapter 19 is followed by the armies of heaven, also on white horses. Again, the two riders really have nothing in common except for the white horse and perhaps the crowns. Yet the word for crown in Revelation 6 verse 2 here is Stephanos, which means that the victor's crown, a wreath made of olive branches that eventually dry up. But the crown that Jesus is wearing in chapter 19 is, is a diadema in the Greek. It's a kingly crown. Antichrist could never wear the, the, the diadem because it belongs only to the Son of God. 
And there are those who, I mean, certainly in the sense Jesus Christ is conquering today. He's releasing people from the bondage of sin and Satan. But this conquest began uh, when he had victory on the cross. And certainly does not have to wait for the opening of his seal. And finally, the sequence of events in Revelation chapter 6 closely parallels the sequence given to us by Jesus at the Olivet Discourse. And the first item mentioned there in Matthew twenty four fifteen is the appearance of the Antichrist. Now here's something also interesting. It's mentioned in verse 2 that he has a bow. But it doesn't mention any arrows. It implies that the victory that he's coming, the conquest, is, is a bloodless one. He, he will at first conquer through a peace won by a covenant or an agreement and not by war. Bible says in Daniel chapter 8, verse 25, speaking of the Antichrist, says, And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. By peace he shall destroy many. Now, think with me. Right after the church is raptured, Daniel says a man is going to come on the scene, He's going to make a covenant with Israel, a seven-year peace treaty. And the whole world will at last finally rejoice because there's the, 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 the problem in Jerusalem has been solved. There's peace between the Muslims and the Jews. Again, we have to keep in mind that this counterfeit is wearing a Stephanos crown. That's why he's going to come in with this authority and power, but it's only going to be for a short while. He will not only bring about a completely unexpected peace treaty between the Jews and the Arabs, but he's going to help them also rebuild their third temple uh, there in Jerusalem. And he's going to uh, uh, gain power by harnessing the world's technology, their military might, and misguided religious beliefs. We're going to see in the coming weeks, the Antichrist will have a sidekick, so to speak, someone who's working with them, who the Bible refers to him as the false prophet. So while the Antichrist is going to be this military, economic, world leader, the false prophet's going to be like this religious uh, guru, a spiritual leader of man that, that people they are going to look up to. He's going to satisfy their, their cravings through an ecumenical New Age mysticism, mysticism type of, of belief. Now this Antichrist, he's going to exert his will, control the computer technology of the day, certainly no doubt He's going to continue controlling social media as we're seeing today. He's going to make it impossible for us to buy or sell, for not us, for those there, to buy or sell without his mark of identification. He'll have his power with, from ten nations supporting him, uh, confederated behind him, and we'll get more into that when we get into chapter 13. But we also read he's going to go forth out conquering and a conquer. That's because halfway through this seven-year tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to show his true colors. And he's going to perform what is called in Scripture the abomination of desolation in Daniel chapter 11 and 12. Jesus also mentions it in Luke, uh, or rather Mark 24, uh, Mark 13 and Matthew 24. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, let the reader understand. And he tells them to flee for their lives. So what is that? Well, it's the time when the Antichrist, after he's helped build this third temple for the Jews, he will enter into the holiest place of that temple and proclaim to be God himself. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3 says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, 
and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. See, at that point, we're three and a half years into the Great Tribulation period, and war is about to break out. Now, this brings us to our second writer and our second point. The second rider comes in on a fiery red horse, and we'll call him the Red War Machine. Look at verses 3 and 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Interesting that this horse is fiery red. Reminds us of a later description of Satan, of the great fiery red dragon in Revelation chapter 12. Let no one deceive you. Satan is behind the wars and the struggles and the riots and the violence that we're seeing on our planet today. And the coming, at the coming of Jesus Christ, we will have peace on earth. But at the coming of the Antichrist, we read peace is taken from the earth. See, the breaking of the second seal releases great wars that are breaking out all over the planet, which is really just the result of the Antichrist, his actions and taking power. Not everyone's going to want to agree with, God, with this guy, and, and even with the nations, people are going to start killing one another. And it would seem that there's going to be nations that will oppose the Antichrist's power, and basically World War, War III was going to break out. And the result of his exercise of power is this catechismic event that peace is taken from the earth. Now understand, this is not the battle of Armageddon yet, because this is something that happens all over the planet. Armageddon just happens in the valley of Megiddo at the end of the Great Tribulation. But what we see here in verse 4 is just plain war that is unleashed all over the planet. War like we've never known, war like we've never seen, nor do we want to. And our planet has experienced horrible wars throughout history. World War I, the total number of casualties, both military and civilian, were about 37 million. 16 million deaths and 21 million wounded. It was thought to be the war that ends all wars. But then, 20 years later, a new, more deadly war developed during World War II, and some 50 million people died. Six million Jewish people alone were executed in the concentration camps by Hitler. But those wars, as horrible as they are, don't even compare to the scale of war that's going to be unleashed by Satan during the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation period. Notice it says here there's a great sword given to this red rider. Interesting, the, 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 the word we normally read of sword is a Greek word, ramphaia, that's commonly used as a sword of judgment rather than uh, the great sword mentioned here in the original Greek is magali makarara. Not Macarena. It's a, it's a dance. It, Macarara. I probably blew the pronunciation of that. But, but it's a sword that can refer to a large knife, a cutting weapon. It can also refer to the event of killing or slaughter, which is a sort of military conquest. So this could actually be a weapon of mass destruction, quite possibly a nuclear-type bomb. Now, in any case, the sort of great destruction, it is a sort of great destruction at the time of the tribulation will be a time of intense war and military activity. 
Right now, man, with all his nuclear weapons and capability, we have the, the ability to destroy the earth 17 times over. And these bombs are strewn all over everywhere. Nicholas Wade, in his book, World Beyond Healing, from 1987, gave us a graphic picture of a nuclear explosion. He writes this, The explosion of a nuclear weapon is an event of immense power. Within a fraction of a millionth of a second, the nuclear materials encasing of a one megaton weapon are transformed into a packet of energy five times hotter than the center of the sun. Out of this mini-sun burst a flash of x-rays so intense that the air for several feet around the weapon is heated into an incandescent ball. He goes on, The little fireball, only a few millionths of a second old, contains the vaporized contents of the weapon and a vast flux of energy created by the fission and fusion reaction of the nuclear explosion. So immense an amount of energy packed into a tiny space creates temperatures of 100 million degrees centigrade and the pressures of millions of pounds per square inch, a violent expansion begins. He goes on. And that's in a thousandth of a second, the fireball of a one megaton weapon has grown to 440 feet across. In 10 seconds, the fireball is more than a mile in diameter. I mean, it should be evident that we're talking about a weapon of, of unparalleled in human history, a weapon that, that has the capacity to obliterate huge cities in seconds. The time of the tribulation will be a time of intense war and military activity. You know, we used to have, we no longer do, I think, a, a, a program in place called MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction, which basically said, if you nuke us, we're going to nuke you. Even if you nuke us first, our nukes are going to get you, and we're basically we're going to annihilate one another. And that was a pretty good deterrent, uh, you know, from nuclear war. But, you know, it was made under the assertion of three things. Number one, there's only two players in the game, United States and Russia. Number two, both were in relative balance. Number three, both were rational. <laughs> All three of those things are out the window now. No longer just two players. Third world countries are now emerging with nuclear power. We have very irrational leaders like those in North Korea and, and Iran who may now have the capability in their hands. We have all these independent nations that sponsor terrorism around the world. So all you need is one madman to get a hold of one of these devices and choose to set it off. It could start a chain reaction that would lead to what we're reading now crashing down upon us. I heard a quote from a scientist who was asked, what weapons would be used in World War III? He said, I'm not sure what would be detonated in World War III, but I can tell you what will be used in World War IV. Rocks. I mean, not to forget other forms of weaponry. I mean, there's a chemical weapons that are out there. There's a group called the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And they released just recently the results of that long investigation of the use of chemical weapons in Syria from back in 2017. And they've proven on March 24th, they, uh, they dropped a, a bomb containing sarin in southern Lat- Latamina, affecting 16 people. On March 25th, uh, they dropped uh, a cylinder into Latamina Hospital, affecting 30 people on March 30th. They dropped an M400 area bomb containing sarin in southern Latamina, affecting 60 people. And then on uh, in Duma on April 7th, 2018, killed 40 people. Uh, and, and it shows reasonable grounds that they used toxic chemicals as a weapon that took place. 
Crazy stuff. Remember Saddam Hussein had used weapons of mass destruction against his own people, in one case killing 5,000 innocent civilians, injuring 11,000 in a single day. Survivors of that incident said the gas at first smelled like sweet apples. They said that they died, and the folks died in a number of ways, suggesting a combination of toxic chemicals. Some uh, of the victims just dropped dead, while others died of laughing, while others still took a few minutes to die, first burning and blistering or coughing up green vomit. So, chemical warfare, nuclear warfare. We read this red horse of Revelation, Revelation 6. Definitely could represent chemical war, nuclear war. I'm not saying that it does absolutely, just speculating, but, but what I am saying is Things like this are going to happen. And nuclear and chemical war is a possibility. Now, if this does involve nuclear war, then certainly verses 5 through 8 paints the same scenario that the scientist gives of the aftermath of a thermonuclear exchange. It's called a nuclear winter, resulting in famine and sickness and disease and death. Fits this whole uh, uh, scenario here, which brings us to our third writer on the storm. We'll call him a Poverty on a pony. Look at verses 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now the colors keep getting darker and darker as the severity of how awful things are increases. We've gone from a counterfeit white horse to a red horse now to the black horse of famine, mass starvation, a time of great poverty where only the rich is going to have food is represented in the fact that the oil and the wine is not going to be touched. They represent luxuries. And then we'll see in verse 8 the pale horse of death and hell. This could be the result of a nuclear attack, a nuclear winter, which happens after the attack. Things just keep getting worse. Remember, John lived in that first century and essentially was catapulted more than likely into the 21st century to see these things that were ahead. So he saw these things beyond his comprehension. He's trying to explain it the best he could and the language that he had of his day. But notice, he says in verse 6, that the cost for food is going to skyrocket. A quart of wheat for denarius, three quarts of barley for denarius, a roll of toilet paper for ten denarius. No, it doesn't say that. Might as well, I mean. Now, Jesus told a parable in Matthew 20 of a man who went out early in the morning to hire laborers to work in his fields, and he contracted them out for, for one denarius for a day's work. So if you have today a job that, let's say, pays you $15 an hour, that would be equivalent to about $120 a day. Now, prices are governed by the supply and demand of an item, but could you imagine a loaf of bread that normally goes for $1.98 that would sell now for $120 for a loaf of bread? Or three quarts of, of, of barley or flour, a little over three pounds of flour that would normally cost about $3.50, $120. See, this is speaking of, of, of famine and, and, and the scarcity of food that, that quickly produces Poverty, people not being able to afford basic foods to survive. A man will work all day long just to provide one meal for his family. And a lot of people today are trying to save for the future by buying silver and gold. Uh, but when it get, gets down to the basics, the commodity that will really hold its value is food. You can't eat silver or gold. It doesn't digest well. <laughs> 
So if you think you want to be the richest man during the Great Tribulation, just go buy a bunch of wheat and store it. And when this takes place, just bring it all out, the storage, and you'll be the richest man in, in tribulation. You may be the richest man in hell as well, but, but, but if it's any consolation. And this brings us to our final horseman. I like to call him death on four legs. Look at verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. Finally, we have the pale horse. The Greek word pale is is chloros. It actually is a a ghastly green color. It's a color of of leprosy described in Leviticus 13. Or the color of mildew on an object. Or the color of a zombie in a zombie movie. It's all that same color. One commentator describes John's words this way. He says, And I saw this pale, ghastly green horse, and his rider was death, and by his side was a grave swallowing up his victims. I mean, think about it. What would be the byproduct of an isolated nuclear bomb, chemical or biological warfare going on all over the earth? Moderate to, to severe skin burns, skin turning a pale greenish color, sickness, mass pandemics, death, skin falling from the body, very much like leprosy. See, if everybody is fighting with everybody else, using whatever weapons are at their disposal, there's going to be mass quantities of food that has been poisoned. I mean, just look at Chernobyl and and Russia. The the milk produced as far away as Europe had to be thrown out because of the radioactive fallout from that accident. Farmers hundreds of miles away from Chernobyl were forced to destroy their crops. And that was just a relatively small nuclear reactor. So what would be the result of a worldwide nuclear exchange? I mean, verse 8 in the Pelos that brings these plagues, hunger and death. Again, from his book, World Beyond Healing, Nicholas Wade writes this. Another overlooked nuclear side effect is a phenomenon known as nuclear winter. It is perhaps the most obvious of all. It is no secret that Hiroshima and Nagasaki burned. Burning cities create soot and soot absorbs light. If enough smoke from incinerated cities were to reach high enough into the atmosphere, it might linger for months, shrouding the earth in a black pail. Uh, the likely extent of such a veil is still a matter of keen scientific debate, but an evident possibility is that sunlight would be blocked out, land and crops throughout the northern hemisphere chilled, and whole harvests destroyed. Now, Jesus, speaking of the same thing, said in Luke 21.10, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, various places, famines, pestilence, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. John here writes that over a fourth of the earth will be killed. Folks, we have 7.8 billion people on our planet right now. That means that almost 2 billion people in this one event are going to lose their lives. I mean, what a picture. This is the result of evil running rampant when God's people are taken out of the way, when the Spirit of God through the church of God is no longer restraining the evil in this world. This is a world plunged into death all under the leadership of the, of the power of sin and darkness. This is coming upon all those that have turned their backs on the one true God and have chosen to live in darkness. 
I mean, is this not the most depressing message you've ever heard? If it, I don't know what else is. God bless you guys. Have a great week. No. <laughs> Listen, God is warning us that these things will be coming. It's not if. It's not maybe. They will be coming. Let's move on to verse 9. Here we suddenly move from the four horsemen of the apocalypse to heaven again and a whole different scene, a different scenario, but not, not a whole lot more cheerful, though. Look at verses 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge your blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So we've read about the unleashing of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We've read of the Antichrist, about war. We've read about famine and plagues. But suddenly the scene changes, and it's before the throne of God, and we're looking at these saints who have been martyred for their faith. Well, who are they? Well, we looked at when the Antichrist comes, he will, according to Daniel 7.21, be given power to make war against the saints and prevail over them. So who are these saints? Well, they can't be the church because Jesus said the gates of hell should not prevail against it. Now, I've said this before, and I will say it again, and I am firm on this. I do not believe that the church will go through the Great Tribulation period. I do not expect to see any of these things that I just described to you. I believe without any doubt whatsoever that we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The dead in Christ will rise first and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up to ever be with the Lord. We will do that before all these things are unleashed on planet earth. So if these saints are not the church, then who are they? Listen, after the rapture of the church takes place, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to put their faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of people who today won't give you the time of day, who'll maybe even mock you, oh, you're just a religious fanatic. Talk about Jesus coming back and this rapture of the church thing, and all of a sudden you're gone. And, and all the true Christians are gone, and they're going, hey, something just happened here. What's going to, I mean, they're going to, first of all, freak out. But secondly, man, they're going to believe, they're going to want, they're going to, want to live their, Christ, their lives for Christ. But listen, they're going to have to die for him as well. People will put their faith in Jesus and many will have to flee for their lives because the Antichrist, he's going to hunt them down and he's going to try and kill them. Now, fortunately, they will still be able to know and experience the forgiveness of God. Unfortunately, they may have to pay with their lives. But you know, it's better to pay with your life and go to heaven than to compromise your life and go to hell. But here we see these believers in heaven these folks that have died for their faith during the Great Tribulation period, and now they're asking God to avenge their blood. Look at verse 10. They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord? They're not asking for a specific time period. They're asking for vengeance. Lord, when will you finally take vengeance on those that have terrorized and killed us for our faith? Now, Lord? You know, when you see a criminal walk out of a courtroom free because of some technicality, or watch some Supreme Court justice uphold rules that sanction the murder of innocent babies, or you realize evil men enslave young girls in a sex trade, 
Are you here of the deviants who make millions of dollars off of child, child pornography? Don't you get angry? Don't you cry for vengeance? God, get them. God, stop them. Lord, do what it takes to make them stop. You know, in Psalm 58, David saw evil men going unpunished. And he prayed this in, in, in verse 6. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. I, I think we've all prayed for a, two, a few teeth to be broken. You know, today the world glorifies tolerance for all religions except Christianity. Faith in Jesus is a sticking point. And it's a small leap from bigotry to brutality. From black lives matter to Christians' lives don't matter. And it certainly seems to be heading that way. So this false Christ is going to hand down the death penalty to anyone who worships the true Christ. And as a result, we have what's called the tribulation saints. What happens with these saints under the altar? Look at verse 11. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Finally, in in chapter 19 of Revelation, when Jesus returns, he will avenge the martyr's blood and their, their cry for vengeance will be answered. But for time, Jesus says they'll have to wait. They'll have to rest. You know, I really think that's a challenge of our faith today as well. We're crying out. We see the injustice in the world. We say, Lord, when are you going to come back? When are you going to finally bring justice to the world? When, when will you make them stop killing babies? Lord, when will you bring righteousness to the world? Lord, when will you rule and reign supreme? God says, just, just wait. It's coming just a little while. Listen, Jesus will right all wrongs, but not on our timetable. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God makes all things beautiful in His time. Not my time. In His time. And He will. Now, just when you thought things couldn't get much worse, <laughs> they do. Martyrs are crying, avenge us. Believers, unbelievers on earth are crying, hide us. Look at the sixth seal as it opens up in verse 12-14. to And I looked when He opened the sixth seal, and behold, there's a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. This is just the planet in pure chaos. It just goes into this state of shock. Jesus described these events in Luke 21, 25-27, as well as Matthew 24. Understand these six seals that we've looked at they give us a, an overview, a telescopic or, or a condensed version. These events, they didn't all happen at once. These are, these are final events as the scrolls open up during the Great Tribulation. And it appears in the very end, nature itself will be upset by this catastrophe. Perhaps some cosmic body, some gravitational pull. Verse 12 says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake. It's going to be an earthquake of such proportion that the fabric of the earth will tear. You know, there's been a lot of earthquakes over the years, thousands of them. But this is going to be the big one. You know, the most destructive earthquake ever recorded killed more than one million Chinese in 1556. Most powerful one ever recorded was a Chilean earthquake in May of 1960. They said that that magnitude was 9.4 to 9.6 on the Richter scale. Imagine doubling that. 18.8 on the Richter scale. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, earthquakes 
volcanoes erupting, mountains are going to be removed, some mountains are going to form, islands are going to disappear, uh, the new islands are going to appear, a mass is thrust up from the sea. Sun and the moon is going to darken, perhaps from ash, or as we looked at, at nuclear winter. And not only that, verse 13, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Greek for stars there is asteroids. It applies not only to stars, but asteroids, meteorites, any cosmic projectile streaking through outer space. And then we read finally verse 14, then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. What happens in a nuclear explosion? The atmosphere rolls back on itself. This could be uh, one final nuclear bang. Just this tremendous rush of air back into a vacuum that causes much of the destruction of the nuclear explosion like we read already. John's words here in this verse are a perfect description of an all-out nuclear exchange. Every mountain, every island jarred from its present position, the whole world shaken apart. You know, if you were here during this time of massive cataclysmic judgments on the rebel planet Earth, I do believe it would make us all take back our cries for vengeance. Because <laughs> it's going to be worse than any cry we could ever imagine for vengeance. It's going to be horrible. Finally, look at verses 15 through 17. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? What we see here is everyone, rich, poor, famous or not, military leader, mighty man, slave, every free man, uh, will begin praying the largest prayer meeting in history. But they're praying for the wrong thing. Because the only thing that can protect them from the wrath of the Lamb is the righteousness of the Lamb. And it's too late for them at this point. For the great day of His wrath has come. And who is able to stand? As we close, we are living in an age and in a day where people either ignore the God who judges or they think that somehow they'll be exempt because, well, I have a good heart. Not so. God's wrath is evidence of His holy love for all that is right and His, his hatred for all that is evil. And, and, and note here, and this is amazing to me, these people that we're reading about, they're not willing to repent. They're hiding like Adam and Eve did in the garden, but, but they don't repent. They refuse to comply with God's will. They would rather run from Him in fear than run to Him in faith. See, they're, they're proof that, that judgment itself does not change the human heart. These men, they just seek to hide from God. And we know they'll blaspheme Him as, as well, according to Revelation 16. But as I said already, when it gets down to this stage, I don't expect to be here. Don't look for me here. You can look for me in heaven. Hopefully you won't be looking for me here. You'll be with me in heaven. Jesus said in Luke twenty-one twenty-six, Pray always that you be accounted worthy to escape all these things and to be standing in front of the Son of Man. I expect to be standing in front of the Son of Man and then kneeling, and then worshiping, and then praising Him. I expect to be a part of that crowd in chapter 5, singing in that song, Worthy is the Lamb to take the book and open the seals of for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
And by the grace of God, that's where we all shall be. God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. I know that this is a bleak scenario. But when we are reading through chapters of the Bible, we come across what we come across. We, we have to let the chips fall where they may. So why has God shown us these things? Three reasons. The biggest is for those that don't know Christ. To see that, that their need for Him and to see that, that He is the only solution to this world's problem. And you need to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and escape His judgment that is coming to this world. Secondly, it's meant to inspire us as believers to warn our family and loved ones to not hold back in sharing the gospel. And thirdly, as believers, these things are written to us for us to be inspired to live holy lives through the power of the Holy Spirit because Christ's return is near. Let me ask you, are you ready for the Lord's return? Listen, the four horsemen, the horses of the apocalypse, they're coming. And we can hear those hoofbeats even louder than when we began our study this morning. The Antichrist is coming. The tribulation period is coming. That's a bad news. The good news is, before all this is unleashed, Christ is coming back for His church. And again, here's the question I need to leave you with. If Jesus Christ came back today, would you be ready? Are you involved in doing some things that the Bible says you should not be doing? Some habits, some lifestyles that that would not please the Lord, that you would be ashamed that is coming. I have a suggestion for you. Stop. Stop it. Get right with God. This is our wake-up call. And finally, if you don't know Christ, I implore you, don't wait another moment. Turn from your sin and give your life to Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that as your word says, that you have not appointed us, your church, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for our salvation. Lord, we recognize we are saved, uh, Lord, but we have friends and family who are not saved. Lord, at this point, if you were to return, Lord, they would be going through some of these things that we've, we've read about. And, and Lord, that just breaks our heart. Lord, we know of people who have walked away from you. Lord, and, and, and Lord, not sure if they would go to be with you when you came back, Lord. Maybe they've completely turned their back on you. Lord, would you touch their lives? Lord, we know your word says you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, Lord. And that's our cry, Lord. We're not willing. We don't want our loved ones, our friends that don't know you to perish, or we don't want them to experience these things. And so, Father, we ask that you would do what it takes to bring these people, Lord, that we can think of right now. Maybe we can even think of one person right now that needs to hear this message, that needs to know you, Lord. We pray that you would bring people into their path that that could preach the gospel to them and they would be open to the good news of salvation. Lord, continue to equip, equip us as we study your word to be those witnesses in the time in which we have left. Lord, we thank you. For your deliverance, we thank you that the victory has been won at the cross. All of our sin has been forgiven. The judgment that we so rightly deserve was placed upon your son, Jesus Christ. And we will not face these things. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.